Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Matthias Rastorfer is CEO and co-owner of Gallery Merchinska in Zurich. He has organized a new show of Juan Moreau's work. Rastorfer wants to reclaim for Moreau the role of rebel and iconoclast, somewhat forgotten after years of viewing what many see as decorative and familiar works. I spoke to Rastorfer just before last week's opening. I asked him about the Moreau market and why he was mounting this show now. Well, two things simultaneously happened. Uh, first of all, we are celebrating our 50 years anniversary of the Gallery Mujinska, which in itself is uh, an achievement for a fully privately run gallery. And secondly, parallel to our exhibition is a major retrospective at the Kunsthaus here in Zurich of Miro. Um, and we were approached by Juan Pugnet Miro, who is the grandson, who is the sole heir who remained um, alive, who represents the Miro family and the Miro estate. And we've been friends for the last 20, 25 years. And we've concentrated on Miro as an artist for the last uh, 40 years. So it all came together, the fact that uh, our anniversary, as well as the exhibition at the Kunsthaus, as well as Jean-Paul Miro approaching us to want to do a curated show and a performance at the gallery. And have you been involved in the Miro market for a long time? Absolutely. I mean, as I said, the gallery exists in 50 years. Basically, the <clears throat> um, involvement in the Russian avant-garde and constructivism on one hand, and Picasso, Miro, Delaunay, uh, Schwitters on the other hand have been the pillars of the gallery. And can you give me a sense of how the Miro market has changed over the last few years? I mean, I've had previous discussions uh, with various dealers who've you know, seen Miro as being uh, the next high volume uh, artist who's also of the highest stature. Uh, and though we've had some peak sales in the last few years, uh, there never seems to be the momentum in the Miro market that there is in uh, some uh, other artists' uh, markets. And that may just be because there's, there's not enough work available. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious about the buyers and your experience with them. I think that's a very... Um, important and a very valid question that you're asking. The, Rimo, the Miro situation, I think, is best compared to Picasso. Uh, both Picasso and Miro are considered as the most significant artists of the 20th century in terms of collecting, in terms of museum exhibitions. And when you look at the Museum of Modern Art uh, and its support from the early days of Miro and Picasso, um, and how many uh, shows actually took place during the lifetime, um, you would see that um, they're always looked at as the two classic modern artists per se. However, the approach to Picasso has always been that he was the daring one, whereas Miro was more the uh, civilized one. And the more we've done research on Miro, the more it becomes apparent that that's absolutely not true where Miro actually was always wearing a suit and tie and Picasso was appearing a little bit more flamboyant, Miro actually burned paintings, slashed paintings, overpainted work of other artists. He was really someone of an absolute rebel. And when you look at the early works from the 20s, which we focus on in the show, 20s and 30s, 
um, it is literally the end of painting and the beginning of painting that he declares. And the market of Miro is reflecting that kind of um, insecurity about who is Miro as a person and as a painter, where he has um, now a market for late paintings um, that uh, have become much more expensive than, let's say, the 1920s and 30s, which again runs a little bit parallel to Picasso, where previously it was the Cubist paintings that would have been the most expensive. Now it is a um, Musketeer or Marie-Thérèse. Um, so there's a change of taste, certainly, but there's also, um, I think, um, a much more in-depth uh, research going on who Miro and his significance for the 20th century really was. And when you look at the prices, yes, you have um, some peaks and you have some lows. So altogether, um, from a gallerist point of view, that's quite a wonderful situation that you can actually still acquire some extraordinary masterpieces at relatively reasonable prices. And of course, for a collector, that's the same point of view. It's, it's something that gives you opportunities. And I really believe in that. I think um, Miro, still as a master of his, of, his, of his standing, has some way to go in terms of prices. Have the collectors just not made the connection between Miro um, and abstraction? It, it, given the high value for uh, abstract expressionist wor works uh, at this moment and the centrality of his work in, in, in preceding uh, that, you would think that it would have just driven more interest. And then I noticed not long ago, someone here in New York um, did a, a show of Moreau works, several of which looked like uh, very current painters. And mm -hmm. people were joking, you know, identifying the painter, uh, you know, the mm -hmm. young 20 some odd year old painter who this Moreau look, uh, work looked Absolutely. just like. And you would, you would think in both those directions, it would generate more interest, demand, uh, appreciation mm -hmm. uh, of, of Moreau as an artist. Do we just need the shows that will make that point to collector? I think it's the shows and... I mean, I've said that uh, in, a, in an interview a few months ago, it is the shows and it's the marketing these days that is uh, not unimportant in terms of um, establishing value. But before I come to the marketing aspect, um, let me answer or elaborate on your comment about the influence with contemporary artists. There's a whole series of collages of Miro from the 1930s that we are actually very much focusing on in this exhibition which use collages, stenciled letters. Um, they use drawings, they do drip painting. And if you look carefully in these 1930s works, they anticipate Rauschenberg um, to the dot, as well as several other artists uh, that use stencil letters, uh, just uh, Jasper Jones and uh, Robert Indiana to mention too. So, Artists have always seen this earlier and have looked at those influences than collectors or curators. Uh, we've had the same experience when we, as a gallery in the 60s, sold um, Schwitter's drawings to Cy Twombly and to Donald Judd. They were collectors of the gallery Mujinska then because they were looking at those works and it was inspiration. So the artists are always ahead of that, that's for sure. 
Um, I think curators, especially the MoMA and the Tate, have caught on to this. They also understand the importance of the 30s and the 20s. But the market is actually, in a funny sort of way, considering Miro more decorative than Picasso. And that has to do with some of the public work, that has to do with some of the um, murals that he did for Barcelona and so on, and also the more pleasant character of some of his paintings, which on first sight look uh, like beautiful, colorful, abstract paintings. And therefore, um, I think um, uh, there was a wonderful book in the 80s called The Revenge of the Philistines um, by Hilton Kramer. And therefore, in a funny sort of way, the bourgeoisie considers this uh, less thrilling, less important, because it's less um, aggravating. And this kind of um, uh, fate has haunted Miro for a long time. Now, how do we change that? Well, one thing is actually you make great exhibitions where you make really extraordinary discoveries. You also show that at art fairs and you show that in the context of uh, the right collections. Um, placement certainly is an important topic in this. Uh, I was just uh, last week in an extraordinary collection in New York. Uh, where I saw these amazing 1920s and 30s Miro's hanging next to Jasper John's and the American pop art, which uh, amazingly works very well. So um, I think that is that is where the discrepancy in terms of pricing comes from, simply a lack of knowledge and the wrong associations until now. I, I remember in um, November... Christie sold a um, an early Monroy uh, uh, painting of his for I don't know eight or so million dollars, uh, and and considering that that similar works though obviously in many ways better works are mm -hmm. in some of the best collections uh, and they're mm -hmm. sort of pivotal works. I, uh, it's almost as if it's sort of across the board. He, he you know, mm -hmm. Miro is recognized ar artist, but somehow just not valued or uh, overlooked, I, I suppose, because he doesn't really fit in. He runs parallel to a lot of, uh, of artistic trends, but isn't necessarily directly uh, central to them. Well, you know, as well as I do, a market is also established by the amount of important works you can sell. And I think different from Picasso, uh, and forgive me that I constantly make that comparison, but I think it's the most um, logic. Picasso was obviously more prolific, especially in the earlier years than Miro. Uh, 1920s and 30s works, important works, when you look at the catalogue resonate, there are not that many. And most of them are really in great institutions or extraordinarily important private collections that have no rush in selling anything. And therefore, you will not have such an active market in that area. Whereas now, when you look at the market, the later paintings, where they're obviously more off, uh, seem to be doing better and there's more trade, partly because of the fashion aspect that I mentioned before, but also because um, there's a market for it. And I think that is uh, something that is um, obviously the problem of modern art in general. How many great pieces can you have um, at auction or in, in, in important galleries or at art fairs that um, would be the kind of work that establish uh, prices? So um, I think what will happen with Miro, which I think is a trend that I would predict and foresee for the next few years, is that you will find, and mark my words for that, you will find a slowing down or a correction in the 
slightly overhyped contemporary market. Um, and you will find a um, more focused interest again on um, true value, important uh, classic modern and classic contemporary art. And with that, um, uh, an increased interest in, in the early work of Miro as well, which then certainly will change the prices upward as well. Um, speaking of the supply, there was a, a large group of works that had been owned by a Portuguese bank uh, that were meant to be sold as sort of a single um, collection by Christie's, uh, I guess two years ago, that remember, yeah. you know, got got somewhat uh, uh, caught up in some local politics and, and I suspect will come back to market sometime uh, soon. Do you view that, uh, considering we just as discuss the supply is that is that sort of an opportunity for that that market to um sort of establish prices show demand give people an opportunity i mean i, I know the the collection is not uh, uh it's a varying quality no yeah but it's but it's supply it's you know and supply all at once which is both good and bad and i i guess that's my question is is it good or, or is it bad that they they're selling it's it? absolutely good and again i make my comparison with picasso i mean when we were looking at this avalanche of picasso ceramics that were hitting the market um everybody thought oh my god uh too much that's going to be terrible and you probably low the prices. I mean, they were extraordinarily high and the bidding was fierce. Uh, I think every single ceramic sold. And if it didn't sell, it sold way above the estimate. So if you have an interesting um, event or phenomena taking place these days, which is a, a strong sale, and if it's not a Damien Hirst sale, where it's a living artist selling his work all at once, but if it is an estate or a private collection or something of, of note and you have a focus on an artist and you have a certain amount of, of work uh, that comes up at auction together, it generally tends to do very well. Um, me personally, I was sitting on my hands for that sale because we certainly wanted to buy a number of works in it and we were quite disappointed not being able to. And I wasn't alone with that. So I know that that particular sale had been watched very carefully and I do know that um, an event like that certainly would uh, also help the prices of Miro. You and some other dealers uh, have a significant stake in the Miro market. Has anyone gone to the, um, I guess it's the Portuguese government that owns them, and tried to uh, acquire that group uh, uh, directly? I have not, but I know of others that have tried, and I don't think it has worked. So, so if they're going to sell, it's going to be as a public au auction, which is probably sort of in well, the broader market's you know, interest. There was, a, there was a huge outcry uh, within the country. And um, I don't know if some uh, donor has stepped forward and said, I'll, I'll uh, rescue that for Portugal, um, which is obviously what everybody had wanted and the government had hoped for. Um, I don't think it has happened. Um, and... Uh, that probably has something to do with the history of that collection and also with, um, as you said before, the the local politics. But um, it's it's very hard to rescue for the nation uh, a group of paintings that have never actually been inside the nation. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, we have a few cases like that. Again, there's a little Picasso painting on a on a ship sailing somewhere or sailed somewhere. The Picasso uh, connection seems to me more than a valid one, and and given the the demand on the market, it it, uh, it feels as if Miro's 
uh, almost the other way around. It needs some institutional support or recognition that will uh, give buyers more confidence. It may there may not be uh, as much supply as Picasso, but then again, no no other artist has quite the supply yeah, Picasso no, does. Uh, well, uh, but no, that's another term that I that I'd like to use. It's connoisseurship. Um, interestingly enough, I think the discrepancy between the um, way that Miro is looked at by the general public um, as a happy, pleasant. Um, beautiful, almost decorative painter, and the way that connoisseurs look at it as the really rebel um, anti-establishment artist who has uh, gone in in many ways way beyond certain aspects that Picasso even dared to go into. Um, that discrepancy always fascinates me because it is really something that is at the heart of the of the Miro discussion and of uh, his importance as a painter and obviously in this context also for the market. And therefore your answer or your question is, is, is very valid. Yes, um, it needs more documentation and it needs more knowledge, but it needs something I think these days, which um, is what we're trying to do with the exhibition. It needs a bit of a sensation as well. And what will happen during the show is that the grandson of, of, of Miro, Juan Puñet Miro, um, has researched for the last 15 years all the performances that Miro did, all the kind of actions that he had planned, and incorporates that in one performance that's going to last 40, 45 minutes, where he will perform those kinds of acts uh, as the grandson in order to summarize the, the, the rebellious character of, of Miro, and he will do that um, in the capacity of the last living heir, as I said, and also of the representative of the estate. And that will be quite quite an event. And so we're going to have that filmed, and of course it will be shown on uh, television and so on. But I think that will show another aspect of Miro, because if you look at some footage of the, of the uh, late Miro, where he was living in Palma de Mallorca, and he was painting some extraordinary abstract works that he was hanging in his garden and then pouring uh, uh, petrol over it and burning them half and then, and then uh, rescuing parts of it um, and dancing like a crazy Indian around it, all happy. Um, that shows you that Miro that people don't know. And I'm assuming the connoisseurs uh, don't know, let alone the sort of broader uh, buying public, since there there seems to be more and more uh, high-level buyers who are not necessarily connoisseurs. Do you well, there's a difference. I mean, you've reported that in, in your various um, broadcasts, I always like to listen to, by the way. Uh, you've reported about those changes in attitude, and I think we have today, we have, as you call them, buyers, then we have connoisseurs, collectors, and then we have the museums. And so the, um, the problem, of course, with um, the contemporary uh, dominance um, at the auction houses, um, which are now partly run by fashion specialists, um, uh, are very much targeted towards a market that um, is catered towards that kind of um, aspect of uh, quick consumption, easy understanding, and relatively quick uh, turnover. Uh, hopefully with an upward spiral. And um, Miro 
much to my uh, liking, um, doesn't doesn't play that role. He doesn't he doesn't fit into that kind of scenario, and um, therefore hasn't been really hijacked into this kind of marketing strategy that works. And therefore, museums and collectors have an opportunity to actually buy work, preserve it, and appreciate it. Where you know, in other aspects, you are unable or excluded from that kind of uh, possibility. Do Do you see more of a um, a bias among buyers towards uh, uh, the um, the uh, origin of the buyers uh, towards Europe, or is it uh, Europeans and Americans? Are there Asian buyers or uh, uh, the so called emerging markets? You know, Russian uh, um, Gulf states or uh, uh, even um, Brazilian buyers. Uh, You're talking about Miro in particular. Yeah, in, in Miro, in this market is. I mean, I, from the, the discussion we've just had, the uh, the assumption would be that it is uh, first a European buyer base with American connoisseurs, but not necessarily broad American uh, uh, buyers. Asia as well. I mean, the the uh, the language of Miro is actually incredibly universal and uh, universally appreciated. And then I think you have to make a distinction between paintings and sculpture. Um, sculpture obviously being something that um, uh, relates very much to Asia and to the Middle East. I mean, there's a very famous, a very important uh, oiseau sculpture uh, that's in Qatar. Um, so you have, you have um, sculptures in public places around the world of Miro, uh, highly appreciated and very much loved. In terms of paintings, um, the abstract quality of Miro obviously is something that uh, relates to the Middle East, uh, non-controversial. Um, however, <laughs> if you go a little deeper, then it's always sexual. So uh, on one hand, uh, if you take the later ones, I think that's why that is doing better in terms of the market, because they're less, less clearly surrealist and less clearly homme uh, et femme. And um, for an Asian buyer, that is not a problem. So for Asians, the early Miro work actually, uh, and we're not talking about the figurative, we're talking about the, the surrealist uh, paintings, um, relate very much to their spirit because it has not only um, this uh, beautiful color palette, but it also has this sense of uh, the, 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 the element, the object and the space around it, the emptiness around it which is a very Asian concept, a very Japanese uh, concept, that you have a lot of empty space that actually is as valid as the object uh, painted within that empty space. And so there's a, uh, when we go to Art Basel Hong Kong, for example, um, there's a definite interest in Miro in Asia. Um, and in terms of uh, Europe versus America, I wouldn't say that the Europeans are first. I think the Europeans clearly get Miro uh, very quickly and uh, almost grew up with him and uh, certainly have no problems with the sexual problem of uh, his, his definitions uh, that uh, he would give verbally. Um, but I think the connoisseurship is pretty equal along, among uh, the good American collectors and the good European collectors. Um, and I think that that uh, is, is, is actually a sophisticated client basis on both sides of the Atlantic. We don't have as much Russian collectors, I think, from Europe. Any particular reason or just uh, uh, not? I don't think. I mean, I think they would go for more for Picasso primarily. I mean, as far as I have uh, learned, 
because that is uh, is the number one and Euro is the number two, let's say. So you go for the number one. I'm, I'm old enough to remember very much the 80s and the Japanese buying. And of course, that was a, a phase of 10 years where uh, Miro also did very well in, in, in Japan. So does that mean there are there's a fair amount of important work in Japan that uh, may come back to there's the market? Some. Absolutely, there's some, because it was very much um, an interest of the Japanese in the 80s. And uh, the Japanese, however, are not very good sellers. I mean, they buy, and uh, if it's not at least the same value or more, they do not like to sell. But, but, so tell me a bit more about the sellers. Who are the sellers? Well, uh, sometimes we have now the transition from generation to generation. So if it is um, great collectors that built their uh, collection in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and their children now um, are inheriting it or are about to get it, they might not want to have uh, the old Miro, but they rather have a young Coons or works like that. So this is, this, is a, this is a definite source, but that's not a source just for Miro, that's in general uh, a, a um, generation uh, change. Um, but I think the other, the other aspect is that European collectors uh, and some American collectors um, change for the younger when they get older. <laughs> it's like a rejuvenation process. Uh, not just because the next generation is coming up, but simply because you feel younger yourself if you're collecting younger and you're with younger galleries. So that I've also noticed over the last few years increasing uh, rather than decreasing. Um, but in terms of finding important works, that is still mainly Europe. And and how is the estate? Does it uh, own much work? Or well, the estate it... was extraordinarily generous they have uh, made possible two major foundations in Spain, one in Barcelona and one in Palma de Mallorca. So they have given an extraordinarily vast and important group of work plus money to maintain those foundations to the government. Um, there are still some works, but I wouldn't say that it's um, a situation where you can find uh, a lot of hidden masterpieces that have never been on the market. So. Um, I think they, they maintain those two foundations as their prime uh, interest, which, of course, belongs to the government now, but they're very personally uh, invested. Um, and in terms of uh, work that is at the storage of the, of the estate, not much, no. So it's really up to uh, the dealers to either find the work or have the work in inventory. Absolutely. And and there are uh, a, a few who have a, a, a fair amount of work. Or at least mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're the impression from watching them buy uh, and how much they, they they've sold. So it, it, there is work there if the if the market gains more momentum to keep feeding it. Obviously, there's there's a family both in London and New York that buys quite frequently, and we both know who we're talking about. But there are also other collectors, and um, it's it's. Um, and, and, and uh, collectors that sometimes buy for investment now as well. Um, I think the, the, the idea of investing in Miro is um, a mid to long term concept if you want to do that. Um, and it will have to do with uh, how in the end modern art will fare versus the current contemporary altogether. And uh, obviously for my 35 years of doing this, um, 
the other example that was always very interesting and in how it changed with fashion was Leger, which uh, always had much more dramatic cycles up and down than Miro or Picasso, and which would always reflect much more immediate a change of attitude towards modern. And uh, Leger at the moment is doing well, so <laughs> I think we're, we're on the good track here. Well, that was one of the um, striking things about the Lauder uh, collection that was donated to the Met, that one of the key pieces was was the most recently bought uh, Leger uh, piece, which in the show uh, mm. uh, really stood out as, as among the best uh, works there. And it was not bought cheaply. It was, it was probably one of the dearer works there. But this is a perfect example. I mean, this is this was a sensation. I mean, here you suddenly had a focus again on on cubism. Extraordinary. I mean, something almost forgotten, something considered old and dusty, uh, suddenly through a um, important collector like uh, Leonard Lauder, through the Met, through some extraordinary paintings that people almost had forgotten, um, caused an extraordinary. Um, uh, media and an, an extraordinary uh, refocus and attention, and it has influenced Cuba's prices. So I guess we're really just waiting for someone to take a, a sort of similar stand uh, towards Miro in, in one format or another, you know, whether it's on the surrealism side or the abstraction. But, but certainly as an artist, there's probably more there in his various uh, evolving styles than there is for many other artists because it's a long career and mm -hmm. the work changes. It's both very recognizably him, but mm -hmm. it looks so very different. That's what I meant when you, when you look at some of the later works and, and, you, and the people make the uh, Christian Rosa joke uh, uh, about the paintings, you realize, you know, you can have it both ways. You can have an established, important artist and feel like you're having something young at the same time. A rebel, absolutely. And I think he is a rebel, quite frankly. And you know, we were very, I mean, throughout the gallery history, we were always very close with uh, Donald Judd and Cy Twombly and, and all those great artists that were also collectors. And the artists that fascinated them the most were, I tell you, Schwitters, Malevich, and Miro. Oh, that's interesting. I, it's funny, I'm, uh, I was just because Sotheby's has this Malevich that they've just announced. Uh, and I was beginning to, to ask people, I mean, it seems like Malevich is, it, is you know, because of the problems with authenticity and, and all, uh, there's not a very big market for Malevich. And it seems to exist mostly at the top. And the family we were discussing earlier seems to be, you know, a major component of uh, yeah. uh, that, that market. Well, Malevich is another speciality of us, and I, I, I certainly would say that we are the world leaders in that field <clears throat> for, for the last uh, 45 years. But Malevich, you know, take the 1915, 16 paintings, and you look at the catalog resume, and it's a very easy math to make. There are, there are maybe three or four of any significance in private hands. Everything else is in major museums. Um, I know that um, when I did um, my Donald Judd show in, in, in Cologne at the Garrick Majinska, um, I asked Judd, who was the great writer about Malevich and who also did the, uh, helped the text for the Guggenheim show at the time, I said, wouldn't you want to make a selection of Malevich works from the gallery to show them side by side with your work? And he would say to me, well, I would love that, but what would Malevich say? And uh, he had the most, the utmost respect for Malevich. And I think I've not met any artist yet who didn't 
absolutely go in awe of Malevich. And he was certainly probably one of the most radical artists of our time. But um, there are no much paintings. They're all in museums. Uh, the, the documentation was extraordinarily rare. And uh, in 1964, the Russian Minister of Culture, Furtseva, had a decree made that all the Malevich works and suprematist works in Russia should have been destroyed. So a lot of them were destroyed by the museums. So we really have a handful. And when you want to know which ones they are, there are these great shows that just took place at the Tate. And the Biola Foundation is doing another show, which opens uh, in a few weeks. But um, that was literally saved by the State Lake Museum and the Museum of Modern Art, so that in the West, we would even know who Malevich is. Yeah. And and uh, I guess that goes back to our sort of supply conversation earlier. It's very hard, even at, at these upper ends, to, to create a market when there are so few uh, items Absolutely. to sell. Absolutely. Because then they become literally priceless. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there's a good part to that as well, because it ends up being that that they they ought to be in a museum and they usually end up in a museum. And in fact, most of the ones that we're seeing were were in museums that are just uh, on the market again because of restitution. Uh, Just to close up with uh, uh, Miro, um, how long uh, is the show up and, and, and are you bringing more work around to fairs? Um, we will have the show up from um, the beginning of October until uh, uh, mid-January. And um, <clears throat> as I said, it coincides with a rather important Miro retrospective at the Kunsthaus in Zurich. So it'll be quite a Miro destination during that time. Um, and we are celebrating our 50th anniversary, so we're actually showing at Art Basel Miami um, an exhibition that will be focusing on the use of letters and words in 20th century art. And so Miro will be part of that as well. Oh, that's great. Well, uh, I wish you the best of luck with the show, and I appreciate your taking the time to talk to us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 